What are some ways to address dyspnea? Are medications always the best way? What about the risk of respiratory depression with opioids? Join us as we discuss these questions and more on this episode of Medical Timeout. Welcome to Medical Timeout, a podcast where we unpack all things palliative care. I'm Rashmi Kadilkar. And I'm Chinlin Ching. Today, we'll focus on dyspnea as we start our series on symptom management in palliative care. You know, when we think uh, about the symptoms associated with serious illness, the first one that comes to mind is always pain. And of course, pain is very significant, and it's a significant consequence of many, maybe most illnesses. But pain isn't everything that we treat. Um, dyspnea or shortness of breath is another very disabling and distressing symptom that people can experience when they're seriously ill. So let's dive right in with our patient's story. Um, let's introduce Mr. R, who is a 90-year-old with a history of hypertension, coronary artery disease, congestive heart failure with, let's say, an EF of 40%, stage 4 chronic kidney disease, and COPD. So all of the chronic illnesses you can think of. He's now hospitalized for the fifth time in as many months um, for what we call respiratory failure. He has a lot going on, including a CHF exacerbation, pleural effusions, a COPD exacerbation, and pneumonia. Rashmi, you're asked to see him to help reduce his frequency of admissions. Um, during a goals of care discussion, Mr. R says that he wouldn't want attempts at CPR or intubation, and he doesn't like coming to the hospital so much, but sometimes he feels short of breath at home and he just doesn't know what else to do, so that's why he comes in. When he comes in, he feels better within hours or days, um, and he really would love to learn more about how he can manage this at home so he can stay home where he wants to be. So let's start with um, a couple of terms here. So strictly speaking, we talk about shortness of breath, which is actually a subjective symptom. That's something that the patient feels, while dyspnea is more of an objective sign, which is something that we might observe when we're looking from the outside. We do often use the terms interchangeably, though. Um, we may also refer to air hunger, which is a sensation of somebody not getting enough air. Um, at the core, what we're really talking about is an uncomfortable awareness of, of one's own breathing. So dyspnea is extremely common in serious illness. Um, of course, we see it in things like lung cancer, COPD, um, but we also see it in about half of patients who have ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, um, and we see it in 70% of people with CHF, with any end-stage cancer, and also actually dementia. Um, and patients might describe the sensation in many ways. They may say that they feel short of breath. They may say that they feel winded. They can't catch their breath. They're not getting enough air. They have a sensation of suffocating or drowning. When you're looking at the patient, you might see or hear them gasping, or you might see their, their chest or their neck or their jaw moving with every breath that they take. Um, you might see that the patient can only say a few words at a time before they have to take a breath. Um, you might see them breathing through pursed lips like they're blowing out a candle. Um, you might see them resting with a tripod position where they're bracing one hand between their knees. Um, you might see cyanosis or, or a blue tinge to their um, extremities or to their lips. Um, and if they're on a monitor, you might note that things like the pulse ox is down or the respiratory rate is increased. 
So it's important to note that although we should respond to both what the patient reports and also what we're seeing on monitors, the gold standard really is to respond to um, a patient's report of dyspnea. Respiratory rate and oxygen saturation don't always correlate with symptoms. Um, some people with COPD really live in a state of chronic deprivation um, and shortness of breath has become part of their life. Um, so other people might appear to breathe easily and have a um, normal oxygen saturation, but they say that they feel very short of breath. So especially in end of life situations, what the patient shows or tells is a lot more important than what we're looking on monitors. Right, so that's what we wanna to respond to. We wanna to respond to what they're showing us and telling us rather than what the numbers show. So let's talk about some of the approaches for dyspnea. Um, and some of them are really very non-medical and pretty intuitive. So things like repositioning, sitting somebody up upright can help them to catch their breath a little bit better. Um, avoiding cigarette smoke or other smoke or other irritants. Energy conservation techniques like assistive devices and modifying activities to use less energy um, and frequent rest periods can all be helpful. Um, we often recommend something like using a fan or opening the window to let air circulate around the room, um, which, can, which can relieve that sensation of not getting enough air. And these are, these are measures that can help really anybody with any kind of dyspnea. And then beyond that, we need to consider what the cause of a particular patient's dyspnea is because that's going to inform what their treatment is. So do they have lung cancer or do they have METs to the lung? Do they have CHF or COPD or pneumonia, a pleural effusion, ascites that's pushing up on the diaphragm, neuromuscular disease, are they deconditioned? There are so many causes that we have to, that we have to consider. And sometimes it does make sense to focus on the underlying issue, especially for somebody whose goals of care mean that they're still uh, receiving disease-directed treatments. So somebody who's got a mass in the lung might be a candidate for radiation or for chemotherapy. Somebody who has a pleural effusion or ascites might be a candidate for a thoracentesis or for a paracentesis. Other people might benefit from things like diuretics or bronchodilators, steroids, antibiotics, um, and many people benefit from supplemental oxygen. Some even need non-invensive ventilation like CPAP or, excuse me, or BiPAP. And so it's important to note that a lot of these treatments uh, aren't immediate and they're not quick fixes, right? So radiation and chemotherapy take a lot of time to start working. If you're doing a paracentesis or a thoracentesis to treat effusions, it may help in the short term, but it may reaccumulate and come back. So in the palliative care realm, we really um, are asked or look to um, help with more immediate uh, solutions to these uh, symptoms. So we reach for opioids. Um, Rashmi, let's talk about how we use opioids for shortness of breath. So low-dose opioids are really the mainstay of pharmacologic symptom-directed treatment for dyspnea. Um, there is evidence for both short and long-acting agents in the relief of dyspnea for multiple causes, including cancer, and COPD, and CHF, and pulmonary fibrosis. There is also growing evidence for the use of long-acting opioids like uh, morphine ER or oxycodone ER, fentanyl patches, methadone. Um, most patients are able to use oral medications even when they come to the end of life, but for many opioids, there's also the possibility of sublingual or buccal or parenteral administration. 
So we talked about the principles of opioid use, Chinlin, in a prior episode. But let's do a little quick review right now. So in our practice, for patients who are opioid naive, we will typically start with something like short-acting morphine, 5 to 10 milligrams by mouth um, every 3 to 4 hours, or an equianalgesic dose of oxycodone or hydromorphone. Some people's symptoms are intermittent, and they are associated with a specific trigger, um, activity, for example. So for those people, they might take an opioid only on an as-needed basis. But some people, um, especially those who are seriously ill or chronically ill, especially those who have dyspnea at rest, the cause is persistent. It's not going away. It's not a specific trigger. So for these people, it might be helpful to schedule that opioid every three to four hours, maybe holding for sedation, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, when people are on every three hour scheduled opioids, we might allow additional doses every hour as needed. Um, and then based on the patient's needs, we might transition to a long acting agent. Again, we would allow additional doses of short acting medications for breakthrough symptoms. Um, and then we would titrate both the long-acting and the short-acting medication as appropriate. So Chinlin, when we talk about using opioids, um, especially if it's not for pain, we sometimes get pushback. People are worried about the side effects. What do you say when you hear about these side effects? You know, the way I try to explain it to people is that, yes, we often think of opioids for treatment of pain and we'll have patients say, but I'm not in pain. Why would you prescribe these medications? I explain that, you know, what opioids do for people um, who are short of breath is that it really tells the brain to just chill out and slow down. Um, and it is very effective in that feeling we have of air hunger. Um, Many medical providers and patients have concerns about the risks of respiratory depression. In patients without pre-existing carbon dioxide retention, um, respiratory depression is really uncommon um, and it's really clinically insignificant. It's usually preceded by sedation, which is why you mentioned sometimes you can just put a hold parameter, hold for sedation, because you're going to see the sedation before you see the respiratory depression. Um, for people with illnesses like COPD who might choose lower initial doses for them, um, but for all patients, the key is to start low and go slow. Mm -hmm. um, we're not going to start with these huge doses. Sometimes patients might even benefit from like one or two milligrams instead of the starting dose of five that you mentioned. Titrate carefully, stick to short acting, as you mentioned. Um, and for all patients, we closely monitor side effects. We involve patients, families, and providers, and education will go a really long way. Education, reassurance, shared decision-making, all gold standard. And I think that will go a long way in helping people be more comfortable in using opioids. Right. And, and it kind of brings up the point that what often goes hand in hand with shortness of breath is anxiety, um, anxiety about about the symptom, about the treatment. And it can be this vicious cycle, right? People feel short of breath and that makes them feel anxious or panicked. And that makes them feel even more short of breath. And it just goes on and on and on and on. So we have to find a way to break the cycle somehow. So a lot of times if we start a person on opioids and if the opioids help with the dyspnea, that breaks the cycle. Uh, sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes people have other underlying anxiety. And so it might be useful for some patients to start some kind of an anxiolytic as well. So in those cases, we tend to start with lorazepam. We will usually use about half a milligram, um, up to one milligram every four to six hours as needed. Um, again, we would schedule doses for people if they have really severe and persistent anxiety that goes along with their shortness of breath. 
It's important to remember that the combination of an opioid and a benzodiazepine can cause drowsiness. If this is the case, and if the principal symptom that you're trying to treat is dyspnea, then it's appropriate to optimize the opioid and maybe decrease the benzodiazepine with the goal of addressing that dyspnea and limiting sedation. So Chinlin, besides opioids and benzodiazepines, what are some other things that we might do to treat dyspnea in our palliative care setting? Um, probably the next most common class of medications that we use is corticosteroids. So medications like dexamethasone or decadron, um, prednisone, these anti-inflammatory medications palliate dyspnea by reducing airway and um, sometimes tumor-associated inflammation. Um, while they are very effective, we know that steroids also have um, negative side effects, um, such as, you know, in high doses, it can cause delirium, psychosis in our geriatric population. It increases the risk of, of infections and obviously hyperglycemia. If you already have a patient who has diabetes, it's hard to justify um, putting them on high dose steroids. Um, but we reserve them for short term use, um, and that's key. And then honestly, for patients who are at the end of life, um, the risks of long-term complications really aren't, is, it's not a factor. And so we really do lean on steroids a lot for um, shortness of breath in end of life symptom management, which we'll talk about later. Right. So there are a lot of different tools in our arsenal uh, to, to combat shortness of breath. So let's go back to our patient, uh, Mrs. R, Mr. R, sorry. Um, remember, he is a man who has um, CHF and COPD and has had multiple hospitalizations for respiratory failure. He has a lot of possible etiologies for his dyspnea. So given his goals of care, um, in, in which he's still willing to accept some disease-directed therapies, um, we can evaluate for and we can treat reversible causes like CHF or COPD or a pneumonia if he has one, pleural effusions. We should certainly optimize his home regimen and we should make sure that he has the tools at home to adhere to that regimen so that he can take the medications as prescribed. We should give him education on energy conservation measures and other non-pharmacologic measures like the fan or the open window that we talked about a little bit earlier. If his dyspnea is refractory to all of these things, then we could consider starting him on a low-dose opioid, maybe 5 milligrams, maybe as low as 2 milligrams of morphine, depending on, um, on all the different factors uh, that he has. We could start that dose every three to four hours as needed and then schedule that if it turns out that he does need it pretty frequently. And then, of course, he should have close follow-up with his primary care provider, and he might benefit from follow-up with a palliative care specialist as well to help optimize the management of his dyspnea, but also to talk about goals of care on an ongoing basis. I think that's a really important point here. Um, and, you know, that sounds like a great plan. So let's review a little bit. You mentioned, you know, someone who comes into the hospital this frequently needs to have goals of care discussions first and foremost. Um, and that's really important. But um, let's review the other medications and things that we also said. So there's a lot of ways that patients might describe their dyspnea. There's also signs that you look for, like fast breathing or tachypnea, purse-lip breathing, accessory muscle use when they breathe. Remember that the gold standard of dyspnea assessment is patient report. So what their numbers say might be really different than what they're looking like. You can't ignore one over the other. You have to take both into account. Um, and so we should really address their breathing even if their respiratory rate looks okay and the uh, pulse ox shows an O2 sat of 98%. But if they're sitting there panting and looking anxious, it's time to talk about it and treat it. Yeah. 
And the treatment of dyspnea manages, uh, the treatment of dyspnea under, involves treatment of the underlying cause, as well as more generalized measures that might benefit multiple patients. So this could include energy conservation measures and lifestyle modification measures. In terms of medical management, opioids are the first line treatment for dyspnea. Um, and when they're prescribed and monitored carefully, they don't cause respiratory depression. Even in patients who retain CO2, if you look for sedation, that's something that's going to precede the respiratory depression. So that monitoring is very important. Other medications that we use to treat dyspnea as a symptom can include anxiolytics, um, corticosteroids, um, inhaled or nebulized um, albuterol, for example, or even saline. When patients approach the end of life, we can continue to use the same medications, the same measures, maybe with more intensity. And we'll talk about that in an upcoming episode. That's right. Um, so, Rashmi, we've added a new segment to our podcast addressing issues of DEI, so diversity, equity, inclusion. Are there DEI issues that we need to take into account when it comes to dyspnea specifically? There are. So there are studies that show that there are racial and socioeconomic disparities um, when it comes to the prevalence and the outcomes of respiratory diseases. So there was a study published um, in 2021 that showed that black patients have significantly worse respiratory symptoms, quality of life and risk of severe disease exacerbations as compared to white patients. We also have evidence um, that some urban neighborhood pharmacies carry a limited range of opioid medications, which we've already identified as a key medication in, in treating dyspnea as a symptom. So there actually isn't a ton of literature out there on the disparities in the prevalence and treatment of dyspnea specifically, um, but it's certainly likely that these disparities exist. I think we can extrapolate them from, from other disparities that we've seen. Um, unfortunately, there is ongoing research on this topic, which is essential. Right. And now on to our pet peeves. Rashmi, do you have a pet peeve or something that drives you crazy about uh, how we treat dyspnea and serious illness? So this was something that, that you alluded to just a few minutes ago. You know, I think we do a big disservice to people who have COPD and CHF and some of these other longstanding respiratory illnesses. Um, being short of breath, being in and out of the hospital, being maybe on invasive ventilation like like BiPAP or CPAP or even even mechanical ventilation on a on a breathing tube sometimes. That's that's just how they live. And they have no idea how sick they are, how tenuous they are, how everything is really hanging on a thread for them. We need to educate them about that. But a lot of times we as a medical system wait until their fourth or fifth or 10th hospitalization to talk to them about how sick they are and, and about their goals of care, about whether all these measures that we're doing for them make sense to them. You know, I'm not saying that if we have earlier discussions with these patients, they're going to change their approach. I'm certainly not saying that they're all about to elect hospice just if we start talking about these measures with them. But I think that if we do a better job of having some discussions earlier with patients about what their goals are, um, we can make their transitions smoother and easier, especially when the time comes um, that they are approaching end of life and, and have had no idea because nobody's discussed it thus far. 
I completely agree. I mean, we know that COPD and CHF are progressive and eventually terminal illnesses. It's not a surprise. So why are we waiting for the 11th hour to begin educating them about the trajectory of their disease and, and how they are going to feel? Um, my pet peeve is allowing patients to suffer with uncontrolled dyspnea just because we as providers are uncomfortable prescribing first-line treatment, which is opioids. Um, we're not saying that we should blanket every single person with opioids, especially with the opioid epidemic still happening. I want to acknowledge that. But a little goes a long way. And with um, very thoughtful prescribing, um, it can really improve quality of life significantly for these patients. So I think that about wraps it up for us for today. We hope this was helpful. Uh, please let us know. We would love to hear from you. Please send us questions, comments, topic suggestions by emailing medical underscore timeout at urmc.rochester.edu. This podcast is supported by a grant from the System Transformation Fund through the Safety Net and Program Support Office with UR Medicine. Thank you to Dr. Kevin McCormick and Nancy Scott for spearheading the grant and for their commitment to palliative care education. Thank you to Levi Ganji for this music and a huge thanks to Nicholas Davis and Genesee Valley Media for recording, editing and producing the podcast. And thank you to you for taking this medical time out with us. We hope you'll join us next time when we'll talk about the treatment of intractable nausea and vomiting. We hope you have a great couple of weeks.